from birth. <laughs> Show them the mercy they don't find on earth. Pod help my metrics. We cast to you still. God help the podcasts, or nobody will. Oh, so beautiful. <laughs> I need uh, need to repent for that one. Three Our Fathers and three Hail Marys, you think? <laughs> there's a lot of good songs in this movie, but there's only one that had that good of a place to put podcasts. I hate to say it. Yeah, yeah. There was a couple I was actually trying to think of, like, how would you work it in? I'm like, that doesn't work so well in some of them. I was trying to think of the Bells of Notre Dame, right? You'd have to just, like, replace the also podcast of Notre Dame. Yeah, I was I was working up something with Podre Dame. <laughs> I don't know. But then I, I was like, oh, wait, of course. Of, of course. course. Yeah. People love the Hellfire song, but... Uh, it's not enough of a song for for our purposes here. Like, it's a lot of talking and chanting. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the animation really carries it. Some might say that the animation really carries this movie. Indeed. I would say that. Let's say that now. <laughs> Everybody and welcome to Me, Mom, and the Mouse, a podcast about the joy of watching cartoons with your family. We're watching every film in the Disney animated canon and talking about how it was made, what it means, and why we love it or don't. My name is Isaac Coleman, and I'm joined as always by my mother, Rue Coleman. Hello, Isaac. And we want to give a special shout out to our editor, Brad Murray at Oak Studios. Thanks for all the work that you do, being extra scurvy on the 6th <laughs> of January. This week on the program, we are continuing Disney's Renaissance era with 1996's The Hunchback of Notre Dame, directed by Greg Trousdale and Kirk Wise. Know what else happened in 1996? Uh, me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we called out the movie that came out the year I was born, so I figured we should call out that this movie came out the year you were born. This is true. This is true. And uh, you also thought about drowning me in a well. And <laughs> Not. <laughs> no. um, and I was also locked in a, in a tower. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of cinematic parallel. No, of course not. But yes, yes, it's true. 1996. We mentioned that before when we talked about uh, 101 Dalmatians. When did this here movie came out? Uh, June 21st. So there you go. So it, this was pre me. Pre your birth. Yes. Well, that's true. I suppose I was a brewing uh, mom. What did this movie uh, mean to you? Did you see it in theaters? And did I see it in theaters through your stomach lining? Because that's how that works. That's how it works. That's science. I think we did go see it in theaters, but I don't remember liking it that much when I first saw it. I did not expect it to be as dark as it is. You've seen the the trailers for the movie. You know, they really don't emphasize that it's a dark movie. They emphasize the silliness and the upbeat stuff, which is not what this movie is. And so when I first saw it, I was like, I didn't like that at all. <laughs> and so then I never really watched it again or had the soundtrack or anything. So I'm pretty sure that was the only time I saw it until we watched it this week. 
This was definitely a certified VHS trailer classic. <laughs> I don't know what VHSs we had the trailer for this on. Yeah, I don't know. I would guess probably The Lion King, maybe. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe some of the ones that came after. Yeah, so that's why I said it was The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Yeah. Because that's that's how the trailer man said it. And yeah, I watched uh, a few kind of like trailers and advertisements that came out around this movie. Uh, trying to find the one I remembered. And yeah, it's like all of them are almost all footage of the Festival of Fools. Like you right, would think, right. I, I'm pretty sure as a kid, I did think that that was like the whole movie. <laughs> and, you know, the gargoyles, uh, the the Jason Alexander gargoyle going, wine, women and song. Right, right. Several of his lines when they came up in the movie, I was like, oh, those were trailer lines. The only like serious moment that tends to make it into the trailers, at, at least that I remember, is Esmeralda going, you're a surprising person, Quasimodo. <laughs> Which I always thought was because she kind of pronounces the like the like surprising. The sir is a little quiet. I always thought she was saying you're a pleasant person, Quasimodo. <laughs> I don't know why, but when I watched this movie, literally only this week. Yeah. When I watched this movie, when we had the captions on, which, by the way, the Disney Plus captions are broken. Oh, yeah. So bad on this movie. But I did see this. So I, I never watched this movie growing up. We didn't own it because you didn't like it. I knew you guys didn't like it. Mm -hmm. So I was never, you know, really sought it out. I saw it, I believe, in college was the first time I saw it, like freshman year of college. And I think it was just on and somebody was watching it and I kind of milled in. I, I don't think I was watching it with like significant intent. Uh -huh. And I was basically like, oh, that was actually quite a bit better than uh, I thought it would be based on its reputation. But man, those gargoyles are annoying. <laughs> and that's still pretty close to where I land on the movie today. Right. I think it is a a good movie, uh -huh. but it's really uneven. Indeed. I do land on it differently now where I like it pretty well, but I think it's uneven. And as you said, you could pretty much cut all the gargoyle business and it would be a better movie. Right. Well, they're kind of I think that's to some extent intentional because I think they're playing around with this idea of you know, maybe he's just imagining the gargoyles and like hauling them around. He's very strong. <laughs> it's that's true. Actually, he is very strong in this movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you totally could cut them and the movie would still work and it would it would be better. It's not the only problem I have with this movie, but it is the, the biggest problem. And like everyone talks about it, you know, how the gargoyles are annoying and uh, they're right. <laughs> no contrary opinions here. I will say, though, this movie definitely has a cult following. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of people's favorite of the Renaissance era. And interesting. Even some people will rank it among the best of American animated film, which I will say at least from an actual like animation visuals perspective. Yeah, I think that claim holds up. Yeah, uh, as a, I would not rank it that highly as a story, but um, I can understand. I mean, listen, look, a lot of people saw this when they were teenagers, which I think is just the right age for it, because you can appreciate the parts for kids and appre appreciate the parts that are too childish and the parts that are too adults. <laughs> when you're a teenager, that hits you just right. Yeah. 
I too have a Disney movie I was obsessed with as a teenager that's really uneven and mostly is just carried by good visuals <laughs> and uh, has some really misjudged moments of fart humor. Uh, we'll get to it. So so I do. I understand. Yep. But uh, it's it's not for me as much. If you are one of those people, I'm sorry. Uh, we like this movie, but uh, we got some problems with it. Yep. Didn't love it. Did not love it. Uh, shall we talk about how this movie came to be? Sure. Uh, it was based on an 1831 novel by Victor Hugo. So, you know, they changed a lot because <laughs> as you would expect from a Victor Hugo novel, it's really, really long and everybody dies at the end. Victor Hugo, a guy whose best known work is called The Miserables. Yep. He's he's a very interesting guy. I've never read this book. Neither have I. Or seen any other version of it. I only know the Disney version. That's on me. But it was interesting reading about him uh, and the book in preparation for this. Victor Hugo, he was a romantic, capital R, right? Yeah. Which was kind of like, basically the idea of that philosophy was the Industrial Revolution has turned our cities into poisoned, polluted, festering hellholes uh, <laughs> with ludicrous infant mortality rates and everything sucks. And unchecked free market capitalism is a disaster for the human race. So let's return to the past and to philosophy and to everything that used to be beautiful and to gothic architecture. And But it was it was a lot less reactionary than that sounds. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, in this book, Victor Hugo, he was for his time, pretty progressive, something of a social justice warrior. You know, he mm -hmm. Les Mis as well, like the hero of that is a thief. And the bad guy is, is you know, an officer of the law who doesn't understand that poor people can change and be people too. And of course, in this, there's the persecution of the Romani people, which let's, let's just go ahead and, and get that out of the way, shall we? So I do have one article. I don't have the six article gauntlet uh, from Pocahontas because this movie, <laughs> this movie is not as uh, problematic as, as uh, Pocahontas. But um, I do have an article. Whenever we cover a movie that features a culture that is not our own, we try to include writings from those people. So uh, I have an article from Christiana Grigori. It's called Notre Dame. Let's tell a new story about Esmeralda and the Gypsies. Written for Newsweek. I'll be linking to that. She's uh, talking about the whole story of Hunchback of Notre Dame, like not just the Disney movie, but some of the other movies, the original novel, the Notre Dame Cathedral itself in the aftermath of it burning down in 2019. So uh, I do recommend reading that. And also this movie uses the word gypsy a lot, which is now considered a slur by many Romani people. And I know there is some dispute about to what extent it's a slur and there's especially some dispute about is it appropriate to use in this movie or not because you know it's set in the 1400s not right not exactly the wokest time in history but um <laughs> for sure so there's there's some debate about that within that community we're just gonna avoid it we're not gonna say it anymore uh we we will say roma or romani or romani and that's that's that. That's that's what how we're going to handle that. But we understand that's not what this movie says. That's that out of the way. Have you ever read the book? I have not. I know you have read Les Mis. And as I recall, you did not like it. 
No, I actually did like Les Mis quite a bit. I even liked a lot of his digressions because that's kind of what he does, right? Is he doesn't just tell a story, you know, here's how we go to from point A to point B to point C, whatever. Here's the end. He tends to be like, I am going to tell you the entire backstory and ancestral history of this one character, just as I'm about to introduce them into the book. So we're going to have three or four chapters of like history just to introduce this one character who's only going to be there for a little while and then be gone (laughs) because that's what he liked to do. And I found it very interesting. I didn't, I wanted to read as unabridged of a version as I could not reading it in French. (laughs) Well, I apologize for suggesting you didn't like it. Uh, And (laughs) yeah, it's here's the thing about Victor Hugo. We were talking about this throughout history, throughout time immemorium. There have been posters, (laughs) people who are born to post, even even when posts were not available. He wrote political pamphlets. Yes. And he also wrote novels and his novels. Yes. uh, Much like a great post. They often go on digressions about whatever he's got to be in his bonnet about. So this book famously, a big part of it is he was not happy with how they were renovating Notre Dame, they were changing it, (laughs) much as many people today are not happy that uh, post the fire, they're going to change it again. Uh, And he was like, no, we have to preserve this beautiful building. So I'm going to write a whole story about how beautiful this building is. (laughs) And also, I guess I'll throw in, you know, my opinions on the Catholic Church, (laughs) which are not very positive. And I'll throw in, you know, how I feel about the persecution of the Romani people and the disabled. And Mm -hmm. I'll throw in some other stuff just for funsies. Why not? I got three volumes and, you know, some 900 pages. So you got to play a room. He wrote it when he was 28, by the way. Doesn't that make you feel useless? <laughs> That's the book this was based on. Extremely not a kid's book. <laughs> but that was not originally going to be the Disney movie that happened after Pocahontas. Uh-huh. So, of course, this movie is directed by Gary Trousdale and Kirk Wise. Yes. And real quick, the last episode where we talked about them was, of course, Beauty and the Beast, the first movie they directed together. And after that, I got some people saying it's Truesdale. And I was like, oh, no, did I mispronounce it all over the episode? So I looked up an interview. Uh, I, I watched interviews until I found one where he introduces himself and says, hello, I'm Gary Trousdale. So even if the name should be pronounced Truesdale or is pronounced Truesdale by some people, he says Trousdale. So I'm not owned. I'm laughing, actually. Um, <laughs> Uh, And we talked about them on that episode, how they had kind of a Musker and Clements arc where, you know, they make a a movie that's extremely beloved and then they get to do things that are a little more experimental. They become like, oh, like we love, you know, we want you guys to make all our prestige movies. Um, And then they made their weird uh, sci fi passion project. But then unlike Musker and Clements, they were exiled. (laughs) They had to go work in the DreamWorks mines. Uh, I believe Trousdale, like all his last work is like Shrek the Halls. Oh, dear. And uh, a Rocky and Bullwinkle like DVD extra on the Mr. Peabody and Sherman (laughs) uh, home release and, and the Shrek Halloween special. And uh, it's, 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 it's sad, but 
hopefully he he still gets those Beauty and the Beast checks. <laughs> but uh, so again, uh, Beauty and the Beast has come out. They are big men on campus and they start working on a song of the sea, which has nothing to do with the animated song of the sea movie that came out a few years ago from a different studio. This was going to be an adaptation of the Greek myth of Orpheus featuring humpback whales. <laughs> I just can't even imagine. I think that this top Chanticlay for a most bizarre Disney movie that was in pre-production. I don't know. that Orpheus especially, if you think, wow, it's weird they made Hunchback of Notre Dame into a Disney movie. Imagine, adapt, they, what could you keep? Like two of the names? And how do you do it with whales? <laughs> Is there a whale hell? Right? <laughs> and what is it? Is it the air? No, because they breathe air. Like, <laughs> Would Willie the Whale have been present <laughs> in Song of the Sea? Uh, I hope he would get a cameo at least. You'd hope, you'd hope. Maybe in hell, you know, because he because he played Mephisto right. in that. And it, it was very hellish. Not because Willie the Whale went to hell when yeah. he died. But uh, he did. All whales do. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> So meanwhile, while they were working on this and everything was going along, dare I say, swimmingly, (laughs) and surely there was nothing that could stop them from working on this great project. (laughs) That's right. Our podcast main character, Jeffrey Katzenberg, uh, because obviously this movie's development gets started in 1993 And it's in 94 that he is ousted, uh, in part because he was taking too much credit for The Lion King and claiming it was all his idea, and that made a lot of people angry. And in part because he flat out told Michael Eisner, promote me or I'm going to quit. And Michael Eisner wouldn't promote him. And then he quit. There you go. At least he stuck to his principles. And I do feel like in some ways this is... Not the first post-Katzenberg movie, but he has less control, obviously, because he only was involved in pre-production. And it's interesting the ways in which that shows. But he basically just straight up told Trousdale and Wise, no, you guys are working on The Hunchback of Notre Dame now. And what's funny is that he he got Alan Menken and Stephen Schwartz Uh, the musician and lyricist to agree to work on it because he was like, oh, the directors of Beauty and the Beast are doing it. And he got Trousdale and Wise to agree to work on it by telling him, well, this is the one Mankin's doing the music. (laughs) (laughs) So that's that that rascally Katzenberg. (laughs) But they really liked it uh, and they really connected to it. Unlike next week, we'll talk about Hercules Um, which was basically like Musker and Clements, you have to pull a script out of a bin. (laughs) And they're like, Hercules, I guess. And they try to make a movie around it and half succeed. (laughs) Um, With this, they they did connect to it and they really liked it. And it pretty much came together as you would expect for a Renaissance era film. Right. And obviously the big compromise they have to make is that they wanted to address a lot of the darker elements of the story, but they still wanted to 
Disney-fy it to some extent, right? And I don't know whether it was a studio executive that was like, you got to have these gargoyles so we can, you know, we can sell Burger King toys, which they did. (laughs) Or if it was their idea because they were like, oh, we, you know, we can't make this too serious. Whoever's idea was, though, that there was a lot of that. And in fairness to them, Hugo in his lifetime actually wrote an opera version of Hunchback that had a happier ending (laughs) uh, because he felt like you could get away with a sadder story in a novel than in an opera. Well, that's interesting. It is interesting. So he himself kind of Disney-fied it. And he also, like, the goat sidekick comes from the novel Mm -hmm. uh, and other versions, as does there's one scene in the novel of the hunchback talking to gargoyles. Yeah. Um, they're not questionably alive like this. And to my recollection, they don't fart. <laughs> I'd have to check, but I don't, I don't think they rip one. No. And again, talking about like the D Katzenbergification <laughs> of Disney, um, his pitch for the cast, which we'll talk about in a bit, like he wanted meatloaf to be Quasimodo. <laughs> he wanted Cher to be Esmeralda. Uh, he wanted Anthony Hopkins to be Frollo. Like he, as usual, he's like, oh, you got to cast all the famous people. And then after he leaves, they're like, what if we cast good voice actors and singers? <laughs> and obviously there are some some big names in this, but even the big names feel like by and large they were cast because they made sense or because they wanted to do it. And not just because like, well, we got to get meatloaf. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine that. Imagine if it had been meatloaf. So weird. But yeah, I mean, I don't have too much more to like. There is a lot to say about the uh, the production of this movie because, you know, it's been written about a lot, especially because, interestingly enough, this is the first Disney movie for which you can find a lot of online sources from the time. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of archived online articles from 1996. So, you know, you can learn a lot about it, but like. I don't know. They they, you know, obviously the the cap system was used extensively. They actually had to create a new studio just to do animation work for the Hunchback of Notre Dame. They opened a new studio in Glendale, California, uh, which they called Sanctuary. (laughs) You know, affectionately, that was the nickname. Well, and. You know, they did develop the crowd technology so you could not just have a crowd, but the crowd of people walking and moving the digital animation of of the crowd, the crowd people moving and interacting and not just being static. Right. And mostly it looks great. The only yeah. place where I really noticed that, oh, this is, you know, I don't know, computer generated uh, was at the end. They definitely because, you know, a big part of the poor of that system is like the crowd can execute pre-programmed animations. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I noticed that the, without even like having read that beforehand, I noticed that the crowd at the end, like there's three or four women doing the exact same movement who they place too close to each yeah. other. So you're like, wait a minute, they're clones. <laughs> but by and large, it looks great. And the cathedral itself, of course, they toured the cathedral which, funnily enough, you know, again, talk about like Victor Hugo wrote this book about the way it was supposed to be in the 1400s. Uh, this is, you know, what the cathedral looked like in the 90s, <laughs> such as obviously it has those stained glass windows that, that Hugo was mad about. That was one of the things specifically he was upset about. <laughs> and they feature prominently in the movie, which is funny. The way I don't mean to downplay it. The way they animated that is 
really impressive. I mean, it's a mixture of 3D objects and 2D objects and backgrounds, and it's so seamless. Mm -hmm. Um, And they really understood that they had to get that right. And it looks so great in the movie. It does. A lot of the, like the lead animation studio on this uh, was Walt Disney Animation Studios France, appropriately enough. Indeed. By the way, for a Disney movie set in France, we do not have what I want from every Disney Renaissance movie, which is the funny French accent. Right. I can't believe they got away without the funny French accent. Nobody's doing... You couldn't have had, like, the guy who keeps stepping into the rack or falling into the sewer. Like he couldn't give me an on, on, on. That would be the old heretic. That's his official name. So Walt Disney uh, Animation France was founded by two guys named the Breezy Brothers. Okay. That was Paul and Gaetan Breezy. Trousdale and Wise credit them with actually like they storyboarded a lot of sequences in this. Um, And they're responsible for a lot of it, including it was apparently their idea to do the opening as one continuous song. And many of the things that happen in that up to and including, I believe, the threatened drowning in a well was their idea. They also were pretty much single handedly responsible for the hellfire scene. Ah. So, again, a lot of the things people think are the coolest stuff in this movie are actually the Breezy Brothers. Um, And it shows, you know. What Walt Disney Animation France, what even these satellite studios could do with a big budget and a lot of trust. Right. Because, you know, this studio also did a lot of work on like a goofy movie, which looks good, but doesn't look as good as this. And on stuff like, you know, they were founded, I believe, uh, in part to work on the DuckTales movie, which sucks. (laughs) This, I think, is, is pretty easy to say. It's probably their best work. The movie was not a big success. Pocahontas uh, had really burnt people out. And this movie, you know, it didn't have great word of mouth because a lot of parents were going to see this and were having a lot of, hey, I got kids here moments. Yeah. Whereas, and again, like a lot of adults would be like, well, why is the gargoyle farting? They actually would had signs put up in the theaters about how they wouldn't give you your money back if you left partway through this movie because they had so many people who would go in there, watch the opening scene. They're going to drown a baby. What? I'm taking my kids out right now. Like, I'm not showing my kids this movie. Yeah. And the theaters were like, we can't give you all your money back. (laughs) Now, of course, it did pretty well. You can't say it was like a huge financial failure, but it did cost more than Pocahontas and actually made slightly less. And again, like the reported budget is $70 million. So when you hear it made $300 million, you're like, oh, that's pretty good. But you have to factor in the huge Disney marketing budgets, how much they spend on the merchandise, how much they spent, you know, printing VHSs, all of this stuff. Yes, it made money. Again, D- Disney's not going to go under because of this, but it did not do very well. A lot of the contemporary reviews uh, were not very positive, and this kind of cemented in a lot of people's minds that, oh, the the renaissance is is starting to end. Yeah. Uh, Which it was. (laughs) But there would be Mulan. They didn't know that there would be Mulan, and that would be pretty good. Indeed. I think that if they had advertised this movie better, more accurately, if they had just gone all in on, we're making a serious animated movie is a movie for grownups. Um, it's not necessarily, I mean, they wanted it to be kids also because, you know, toys and things, but 
but it needs to be the right tone. Yeah. And the tone, they just didn't get quite right all the time in this movie. Exactly. And I de- I genuinely think they would have gotten their best picture nod that they were gunning for if they'd committed to seriousness because the Oscars don't really give out awards for movies. They give out awards for narratives, you know, around the movies, not the narrative of the movie. And the narrative of like, oh, Disney is doing something serious and different and dark. Right. Plus the added impact of the movie being pretty good. They might have had a shot, but they actually they were so committed to taking your kids. Jason Alexander got in trouble during the press tour because he was talking about it and he was like, you know, I'm very proud of my work in this movie. I love my character, but I would not take my four year old to see this. I'm going to wait till he's a little older to show it to him, <laughs> uh, which is absolutely right. You know, yeah, correct yeah, take. agree. And Disney like like made him issue an apology and like put out a statement that was like, no, it's it's totally great for kids of all ages. It's fun and uplifting. And, uh... you know, <laughs> so like that. You know, just lying, like even more than than marketing normally is lying, just just bald faced. So. So, yeah, they they kind of shot themselves in the foot there. But fortunately, they'd be back soon with Hercules, the greatest movie of all time. <laughs> but uh, you want to take us through the cast of this here film? Sure. First, we have Tom Hulse, I think, or maybe Hulse, but yes, probably Hulse. Hulse as Quasimodo. Um, mostly the only thing I've seen him in is he played the title role in Amadeus. Yeah, uh, yes, that's true. I did. You're right. That is the title role. <laughs> I was like, no, he played Wolfgang Mozart. Oh, right. <laughs> he played um, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I think he's great uh, casting for this movie. I think it's a great way to express in an animated medium that, you know, this guy's rough on the outside, but super gentle on the inside by giving him a super gentle kind voice. It is obviously very different from what everyone was expecting the character of the Hunchback to be. I mean, Charles Lawton had basically, you know, conceived of how everyone thinks the Hunchback sounds with, you know, sanctuary, sanctuary. Well, in the book, I think even he's supposed to be deaf because of the bells. So he can't hear very, you know, he can't hear hardly. He doesn't speak clearly. Um, because he's deaf anyway. Yeah. So that's why he usually sounds more like that in live action movies. Uh, and we should talk about James Baxter, who was the supervising animator for Quasimodo. Mm-hmm. I didn't really realize uh, what a great animator this guy was and has been on several movies we've talked about. He was a character animator on Rescuers Down Under. So, for example, he animated Joanna, Ah. all of those hilarious Joanna reactions and moments. (laughs) That's James Baxter. Uh, He was also a supervising animator on Beauty and the Beast. He was the animator for Belle, but he was also the guy who did the ballroom sequence, a little scene you might remember. Yeah. (laughs) On The Lion King, he did Rafiki. On Little Mermaid, he did Ariel. Uh, He was involved in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. He would go on to uh, be even more heavily involved in Prince of Egypt, Road to El Dorado, Spirit Stallion of the Cinnamon. (laughs) He did several scenes in the uh, Gravity Falls intro and in several (laughs) episodes like he he was the uh, an animator for the best part 
I would say only good part of Mary Poppins Returns. Like he's a truly great animator and he not only animated the hunchback, but is credited with coming up with his character design, which I think is brilliant. Um, But do you know who else besides Meatloaf was being (laughs) considered for actually auditioned for Quasimodo? Uh, I think I saw that Mandy Patinkin did. That's correct. Which I like Tom Holson this a lot. Yeah. I think Mandy Patinkin would have been even better. Yeah, he's got such a great voice. But he was super difficult (laughs) in the audition. He brought his own accompanist. He went over time. He only wanted to sing and refused to read any of the spoken word parts. (laughs) He's like a perfectionist. Famously, he's, you know, which I think is to his credit. But, you know, maybe maybe you don't have to go quite that hard for a Disney movie. Yeah. Would have been great, though. Honestly, think it would have been better. No offense to Tom Hulse. I do like how they made they did this nice contrast between Quasimodo's voice being kind of a high tenor voice and then Frollo, done by Tony Jay, having a very deep baritone voice to contrast these two characters. And Tony Jay was chosen because Trousdale and Wise loved working with him on Beauty and the Beast. Yep, where he was Monsieur de Arc. And I'm sure, you know, they were like, you get these two lines and you're so great. Let's have you back. <laughs> right. He, I mean, genuinely a scene stealing performance. And like, I mean, the thing about Tony J is he's one of those voice actors where he is a good performer and he could do like accents and stuff, but he only has the one voice. <laughs> it's just an incredible voice that he wields with precision. Right. And this is definitely his best role or his biggest role, uh, his best, but he, it's his biggest role and he's great in it. And it makes you wish he'd you know, gotten more roles of this size. They got Demi Moore to do Esmeralda. She was an actress who's especially popular in the 90s, starting with the movie Ghost. I don't know if you've ever seen that one. I'm aware of it. I haven't seen it. Um, I think everyone's aware of the pottery scene. (laughs) Right. And that's the thing. Demi Moore, uh, kind of a surprising choice. She was definitely known for far more adult movies. Right. Than this one. I saw they wanted to get someone who had a deeper voice, like not a, a soprano. They wanted somebody with a more husky voice which she had, although she didn't get to sing her own stuff. No, because she can't sing. Correct. (laughs) At least they did start letting people sing their own stuff in this movie as well, Um, probably because Katzenberg was gone. Exactly because Katzenberg was gone. In (laughs) fact, you know what was really shocking to me? Tony Jay had never sung in anything before this. I'm surprised. I am. I listened to Hellfire again after that, and I was like, you can't tell. He sounds great. But he was apparently super nervous about it, which is just, I mean, by all accounts, Tony Jay is a lovely man, but it's just so funny to think about his voice and imagine him being like, I am nervous. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Kevin Klein did the voice of Captain Phoebus. He um, is Maurice in the Beauty and the Beast Delarme. And of course, he's in a ton of movies. I tend to think of him first in Silverado, which right, is right because we own Silverado, <laughs> right? Which is weird because it's not a particularly like well-known movie. But yeah, Kevin Klein is great, and I actually think he's great in this. In the recent oral history that I read for this, uh, Trousdale and Wise say that his performance was so good it saved some of the worst jokes in the movie, <laughs> in their opinion, such as uh, Achilles' heel. <laughs> 
It's true. And, it's a bad joke. Oh, I didn't know you have a kid. Ah, uh, yes. But this character is very much a Kevin Klein character, and he knows how to deliver those jokes and make them funny and charming and roguish and not you just rolling your eyes. The thing about his jokes is they're, they fit with the movie better. Agreed. Super agreed. Paul Candle is Clopin, the jester, the leader of the... Court of Miracles, whatever. He kind of our narrator of the piece a bit. Yeah, another comic relief character that works by and large. Um, and yeah, he I believe he was basically just they were like, this character mostly sings. Let's go get a Broadway actor. Indeed. They are like, let's get a singer. So he hasn't really been in movies and stuff, but he's yeah, he's uh, from Broadway. <laughs> Good choice. Katzenberg probably wanted to cast Madonna. <laughs> probably. And then we have the Gargoyles, Charles Kimbrough (laughs) as Victor. He has mainly after this, he did a lot of voice acting. He'd been in some movies before, but I think it seemed like, you know, he was in movies and then he got older and then he did voice acting. (laughs) He also was in a TV show called Murphy Brown that was very popular. He was uh, a very straight face, straight lace kind of character on Murphy Brown. That is basically what his gargoyle counterpart is. And the next person, sorry to step on your toes, Jason Alexander, is best known, of course, for being in the sitcom Seinfeld. And basically, Hugo is is extremely similar to his Seinfeld character, Uh, uh, except that Seinfeld is really funny. So both of them were just like, just do your thing. Originally, I forget who they were going to get, but Katzenberg had some insane ideas for these characters, too, that would have been like Arsenio Hall, David Letterman and Jay Leno. That's right. That's right. Arsenio Hall, David Letterman. I don't think Letterman would have done it. (laughs) The late night guys. Leno. Leno would have done it. No (laughs) question. But apparently uh, Jason Alexander had really wanted to be in a Disney movie. He auditioned for LeFou in Beauty and the Beast and uh, some other character, I I forget who. Oh, uh, Cogsworth, of course. He wanted to be Cogsworth. Didn't get in. But by this point, he had, he kind of got his in by playing uh, a character that's not aged super well, uh, Abysmal. Yeah. um, In the uh, Return of Jafar and Aladdin TV show. So he he started he wanted to be in Disney so bad. He was like, I will take a terrible role <laughs> in one of the TV shows yep. so that I can be in a movie. So, you know, he did care. You got to give him that. I don't like his character, but he did care. I don't love the gargoyles, but whenever Hugo's talking, it's like, oh, yeah. And then Mary Wicks as Laverne and a little bit of Jane Withers because Mary Wicks actually died before they finished making this movie. So it was her. Last movie, obviously. The thing I've seen her in that she's most recognizable to me is she was Sister Mary Lazarus in the Sister Act movies. Right. Also, you know, Disney, Disney classics. Yes. Well, let me also say uh, Mary Wicks was also the live action reference for Corella DeVille. Oh, I didn't remember that. Yeah. So even more interesting. Oh, yeah. So David Ogden Stiers is back as the Archdeacon. We know who he is. I mean, yeah. I think he's uh, we can cross him off the list. Right. He's basically he's there like I'm in all the Disney movies now. And of course, the old heretic, my fave is Gary Trousdale, (laughs) the director. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Shall we get into the flim? Let's do it. All right. Death. Death stalks you at every turn. (laughs) Ah, yes. 
I was actually listening to the soundtrack again today because I felt like because I hadn't really listened to the soundtrack much previously, I couldn't really nail down which part of the singing was which song because so many songs kind of run into each other and are considered one song on the soundtrack, even though I would consider them two songs. Mm-hmm. Um, this one is extremely musical, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yes. And I mean, Stephen Schwartz worked on a lot of like sung through musicals. So, you know, and Alan Menken considers this his best score, uh, as does Stephen Schwartz. I have to say they might be right. The uh, the score especially, I think the songs are very good, but like, I don't know if you can beat the uh, Ashman Mencken songs. But for the score, yeah, just listening to the soundtrack, it's it's incredible. And they really do, unlike Pocahontas, which is just like, ah, it's just Disney songs in a Disney movie. These songs really put you in the place. And they're very, you know, obviously very gothic, very religious we're chanting Latin all over the place. And in some of the songs, just the music gives you chills. I was just listening to the soundtrack. Some of the songs that aren't, you know, the Disney song style where they're actually singing lyrics, but, you know, it's got the chanting or whatever. Certain parts I was getting goosebumps and I'm like, I don't even remember exactly what part this is in the movie. I think I know, but my hair's all standing on end. <laughs> right. And the themes and leitmotifs he writes that drift in and out of the score. It's 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 really good work. I wonder, honestly, if he was like, I imagine he would have had to be working on this and, and Pocahontas at similar times. It, <laughs> I think he might have cared about one more. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Maybe they didn't have their uh, working partnership down as well when they did Pocahontas and they'd gotten everything ironed out and working properly in this one. I don't know. And not for nothing, he would have been reeling from from the death of his best friend. You know, there's, yeah, yeah. you know, the, yeah. Uh, but this opening is incredible. I mean, everything about it, like it just moves from we open on clouds and church bells and choir. We go all the way through the city of Paris and we see Notre Dame and we, you know, uh, incredible caps shots. And we we eventually, you know, get to Clopin's booth where he's going to inject a little levity into this dark, dark opening in which four Romani people are beset upon by Judge Claude Frollo. uh, And he assumes they're stealing because he's extremely prejudiced against their people. Yes, he would. He he would like to exterminate all of them and he's going to try to. We're just going to start right off with this movie with. Wanting to do genocide, yep. <laughs> murder, yep. attempted infanticide, yep. uh, <laughs> uh, all of it. Eternal yeah. damnation. Indeed. Yes. Yes. So the Dies Irae. Yes. Though what's amusing, they they use the words Dies Irae in this, but they don't actually do the Dies Irae music. The Dies Irae. It's actually to a different tune. Right. Which is fine. It's just funny that they use the words without the music that is iconic in so many other movies. Mom status right up front. Murdered by Frollo. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Would you like to explain the DSE raid to uh, to our audience, though? Because I didn't know about this until you told me about it. DSE means Day of Judgment, and it is a medieval Latin poem 
It means day of wrath, and it is used in the Roman Rite Requiem Mass for the Dead or Funeral Mass. Basically, it's a Gregorian chant that was used in churches, and it got picked up and used in movies, soundtracks, and stuff. Basically, this is the musical phrase that means death. Like, it's shorthand for death. If you're using this musical phrase in a movie, it's either meaning somebody's going to die, or it is indicating things are scary, or it is being a joke about things being scary when they're not really. So it's used even in things like Nightmare Before Christmas. Making Christmas. Yes. Dies Irae. <laughs> this musical phrase and, you know, music that is either that exact phrase or change it slightly. Sometimes it's, you know, putting it backwards or changing the intervals just a little bit. It is in so many movie soundtracks, including Frozen 2. Indeed. Where you will recognize it as, you know, the, the song that's calling Elsa and that drives her nuts. <laughs> they change the rhythm up in it, but it is indeed. But here it's like DSC Ray. So, you know, it's fine. Yeah, I think we basically covered what happens here. Uh, but the Archdeacon won't let him, won't let Frollo drown a kid and actually manages to, uh, uh, as we are told uh, by Clopin, he actually feels guilt for the first time in his life. Yes, because I love the line where it says he, I don't remember exactly how it phrases it, but he is looking for, he sees sin everywhere except in himself. Correct. And uh, in the book, this character is the Archdeacon of Notre Dame. They changed it to a judge because they didn't want to offend the church, which they ended up doing anyway, because it's very hard not to offend the church, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, in this country at this time and onward. <laughs> then we finally get the title card after this whole opening segment. <laughs> but this le- this is the weirdest moment, though, of him being a judge is when he's like, all right, I will raise the boy as my own. We'll keep him here, though. And there she gets like, why? And he's like. Because have you seen the title of the movie? <laughs> also, he ugly. <laughs> also, he ugly. And he's staying. <laughs> and the Archdeacon's like, no, I haven't seen the title of the movie. And he's like, well, here it is. <laughs> As the music swells and we go up through the bell tower and it's like the bells of Notre Dame. And I got, I genuinely got chills. Yep. I truly did. I had goosebumps at this moment. This This whole opening is... Pretty impeccable. It's a good opening. And I do like the line. It's talking about, I'm telling you a story of a monster and a man. Who is the monster and who is the man? Right. And of course, they pay that off at the end. Yes, it, it turns out that, uh, yeah, it's it's Frollo. Frollo's the monster, as it turns out. So when that quiz comes up later, <laughs> make sure to circle the right box. Indeed. You know who it is. Yes. And uh, Quasimodo, being a pre- Disney princess, talks to a bird. <laughs> Is a bird friend. Yes. Uh, don't worry, is voiced by Welker. Welker got his <laughs> paycheck. Yep. He made bird noises. <laughs> he was like, tweet, tweet, $4 million. <laughs> anyway, so today is the day of the Festival of Fools. Everybody's kind of preparing for that. And you're like, wow, that opening is so evocative. It's so yeah. powerful. It honestly deserves to be in the same conversation as... Circle of Life, 
And then the the Jason Alexander Gargoyle starts talking about cutting the cheese and does armpit farts with his stone hand <sighs> in his stone arm. Yep, yep. They were introduced to the Gargoyles, Laverne, Victor, and Hugo. Ha, ha, ha. Victor, Hugo. Do you know why it's Laverne? Uh, I saw it was because of Laverne Andrews of the Andrews sisters. Yes. But I was like, I need some more explanation of why you picked. The full explanation they've given (laughs) is she's named after the Andrews sister with the funniest name. Okay. But why the Andrews sisters? Because they needed a girl name. (laughs) (laughs) All right. But yeah, they're so gross. It's not just the fart joke, but like. Especially again, the the uh, Hugo, like he swallows a loogie and it's gross. And it's like, what is this gross out lowest common denominator DreamWorks pre DreamWorks humor doing in the in the drowning a baby in a well movie? (laughs) (laughs) And it really does like it, it takes you so out of it. And it's not funny. It's annoying. It is. I was writing down, like, are they his imaginary friends? Because they do, like, they're stone, and then they're alive, and then they nobody else ever sees them move. Uh, except at the end, they actually help with the attack later. Right. But I don't, it's not clear. I kind of like it better if they're his imaginary friends. Yes, I agree. Here, Here's the other problem with these characters. The Hunchback's isolation needs to be... Truly horrible, right? I mean, it needs to be much like Tangled, right? Uh-huh. Where she's stuck in a tower and she's basically gone insane, right? I mean, there's a lot of similarities, I will say, between this and Tangled that I felt. But even worse for him because his abusive parental figure mm-hmm. isn't even like funny, which I was thinking right. about this. I would not, Frollo's a good villain. He's not a cackling maniac. He is just. A force of evil. Yeah. He's never really funny or fun, which is fine, except when the movie tries to be, you know, a funny, fun movie. And it has the worst person. Again, a genocidal maniac walking around its center. But like, you know, he needs to be truly isolated. Even Cinderella did this better, I think, where or Sleeping Beauty. Also, she's kind of isolated where, you know, they're talking to animals and, and nobody talks back to them and they have no real friends like he should just be talking to the stone gargoyles. Well, and he could and he could do like almost even like Kristoff does with Sven, right, where he yes. talks for Sven, you know, so he could be talking to the gargoyles and be like, what, you think I should go to the festival? I couldn't possibly go to the festival. Yes. You know, my master Frollo would never let me go. But I really want to. You all know, you know, exactly. and, and, yeah. and, and pretend like whether he talks for them or not, he could sort of interact with them so that it's not like he's just talking into a void. Right. He could do exactly what Clopin does with his little puppet. <laughs> Which, again, is is. Yeah, exactly. That's. Because he needs to be isolated and he is, but it muddies the waters if he also has three good friends like full of. And let me tell you. So, again, this movie, I think, is trying to be like, are they real or are they not? You know, even in the final fight, which, again, muddies the waters, dare I say, uh-huh. you you could be like, oh, well, you know, maybe he's pushing the gargoyles and imagining this and whatever. 
let me tell you what they do in the sequel. <laughs> okay, I'll save it for sequel spells, remakes, rise and reboot. They give a definitive answer, and it's the craziest possible answer they could give. Alrighty then. So I mean, let me tee that up for later. But but yes, they do encourage him to go to the festival. But then you know, Master Frollo arrives to have a meal together with. Quasimodo. And again, you're like, oh, I guess we're back in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, you know, little touches like when he gets the dishes for serving the Frollo gets a nice dish and Quasimodo just has a, you know, you know, poorly carved piece of wood for a plate. And- Which is really clever and subtle and visual. And again, then this and it just doesn't belong in the fart joke movie. That is not <laughs> subtle or clever. Right. Um, I do. I was kind of amused by the alphabet of evil that Frollo has him do. Yes. <laughs> a is for abomination. I know. I mean, but it yes, it, it is somewhat amusing, but obviously it's it's also horrible. And you feel it for is him. indeed. It's horrifying. This scene here at the beginning actually is the one I felt reminded me the most of Tangled because you get the parallels so much of the abusive parental figure who's who they don't realize is abusive Right. Wanting to get out of their tower (laughs) and go to one thing. I just want to go see the floating lights. I just want to go to the festival one day. Which again starts with Cinderella, obviously. Right. But Tangled Tangled does it the best of all of them, I think. Yes. The song is called Out There, though it kind of of has two parts. Um, So the first part is called Stay In Here, which is sung by Frollo. And is you you can't go out. <laughs> it's not safe for you out there. Everybody will be mean to you because you're a monster and you're an abomination and nobody wants to see you. And so you need to stay here. And then when he leaves, Quasimodo sings the second half of out, which is out there in here, out there where he just wants one day out there among the people. Right. And Tom Hulse is a great singer. Right. And they do good job with the visuals here where you get to see so much of Notre Dame as he's like going all over it. Yeah, he he kind of parkours around Notre Dame and swings around, um, which really lets them show off the, the 3D aspects of it. There's this awesome cap shot of him sliding down the gutters. And then yeah. just when I was like, wow, that was amazing. There's another, which is him on the, the, the spire, you know, at the top of the tower and it circles around him. And it, mm-hmm. it really shows the power of a good director. Not that, you know, you can necessarily ascribe to the theory of like, oh, director, you know, everything good about a movie or bad about a movie. Like it's all the directors, but mm. Like, again, comparing this to Pocahontas, where the directors are not of this caliber, like these guys know how to use caps. Right. And that they were like, let's superimpose Pocahontas's face over an eagle over the battlefield. And you're like, snark. (laughs) (laughs) Now we get introduced to Esmeralda, who is dancing for money on the on the street corner with a friend there. She's dancing. And of course, the. uh, Guards are coming along and trying to arrest them because they're, you know, Roma. And there's some blonde guy, some blonde guy who we don't know who he is. is like, hey, leave them alone. But he's sure animated like a character. Indeed. It takes a long time before they actually finally tell us this is Captain Phoebus. Yes. He was apparently 
fighting in the war, some war, and has been called back by Frollo to be his new captain of the guard. Frollo is the minister of justice. I don't think we specifically said he's not the archdeacon, but we we said, but we don't think we said he's the minister of justice. He's the authority in the town, yeah. And uh, yes, this is where he has uh, the greatest joke of all time, which I got a genuine laugh at, and the rest of the group uh, groaned and sighed, and and <laughs> there was much wailing and gnashing of teeth, which is when he says Achilles heel. To his horse. Yes, Achilles. His horse is named Achilles. Purely for that joke. His horse is yep. not named Achilles in the book. Oh, I'm sure it's just for that <laughs> joke. But yeah, and the, and the guards are like this. This shows how, you know, the, the police essentially like can be a tool that is used badly. Right. Because the, the police in this, their job explicitly, as Frollo explains in, uh, I believe, the next scene. Yes. He explains like, listen, the job of the police in this town is not to like stop crime or keep order. It is to persecute the people who are different. Yes. And exterminate. <laughs> And exterminate, yes. And and you see that in this scene even before Frollo lays it all out. Right. Um, and Phoebus, he's not yet totally separate from that. He will be. He's a little... Not, he's like... At this point, he's still complicit in it. He's still like mm-hmm. in the system. But he, he has lines. He has moral lines. Yep. The, the scene of... Frollo squishing the ants was pretty darn creepy, actually. It is. I mean, he's he's just casually talking about, like, again, your job as captain of the guard is to wipe out all the brown people. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. I'd hate to live in a place like that. Yeah. Uh, Black Lives Matter, by the way. Mm hmm. But now it's time for the festival and what you see in every trailer and topsy turvy. And holy crap, look at all the confetti and. Look at Clopin having fun and look at the party. And there's a lot of good, again, jokes that work in the I'm not saying this movie must be completely jokeless, you know. Yeah. Even Brave Little Toaster, which is a movie that I think, you know, that we talked about, like goes for deliberately unpleasant feeling still has jokes that work. Yeah. But I really enjoyed the jokes here of like because everything's topsy turvy, like the dogs walking the men especially <laughs> was a very odd visual, but like, uh, and the movie literally lights up here. Like as soon as the festival starts, like the sky gets brighter and <laughs> all the colors are more saturated and it's, it's good stuff. Quasimodo of course sneaks out. Cause otherwise we wouldn't have a movie. <laughs> he bumps into Esmeralda who compliments him on his mask. Cause of course she thinks he's wearing an ugly mask for the day. And she's obviously the first person who's ever been nice to him, except for the gargoyles, which is why they're they- they're not real. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's the first real person. Yeah. And he's like, wow, she's not even doing armpit farts. <laughs> I can't believe you keep going on about that. <laughs> I hate, hate fart jokes in animated movies. And I hate how any scatological humor and I hate how prominent it is. Esmeralda, of course, is uh, does a dance and she kind of flirt dances a little with Frollo because he's there in his, you know, official capacity as head grumbler. (laughs) (laughs) I think this day is the worst, but I have to be here anyway. I kind of read that as he 
may, you know, it could be that he hates the peasants and he hates the peasant festivals and he hates fun. <laughs> but it could also be how I kind of thought of it is that like he loves it but can't admit it. Right. I especially got that sense when he's talking to Quasimodo, right, where he's like, "Oh no, it's it's horrible." You know, I hate that I have to do it, in, you know, in part to like torment Quasimodo. But he's like, I I actually think it's neat. I love confetti. <laughs> but yeah, and uh, we got to crown the king of fools. It's the whoever the ugliest person is. And so, of course, it's uh, it's the hunchback and he it's Quasimodo. By the way, another thing that annoys me to no end in this movie that starts with the gargoyles, people calling him Quasi. Yeah, you know what? I've never been a fan of that sort of nicknaming in these movies where you take somebody who's got an iconic name and you shorten it. Yeah. Um, like imagine if they'd called Pocahontas Poca or something. <laughs> Pokey. Pokey. Yeah, you know they would have done it. Even more of a nightmare than that movie already is. <laughs> but yeah, and and, uh, and he actually cries with joy. But then the guards, again, the cops, they start throwing fruit and everyone is mean to him. And this is another scene. It's like, geez, this is kind of hard to watch. Gets real dark again where they start abusing him. He gets tied to a wheel and pelted with fruit. And I mean, this is torture. Like this is physical assault. This is painful. And the worst is that, you know, he just had his highest, happiest moment where he thought everybody was accepting of him, even though he's hideously ugly. And now they're beating and mocking him. It was just a joke. Yeah. And he begs Frollo to help him and he won't. He turns away. Yep. Again, it's like it's it's a problem with a lot of Disney movies, especially those that try to go dark. And Lion King proved you can do it. You can be super dark and have super adult themes and still be funny and fun. But this one, it's a little too dark and a little too fun. It's a little too much in both directions. Like having this right after Topsy Turvy gives you whiplash. Yeah. And then after it, you know, we have Esmeralda's fun dance and, and her silly chase scene. And yeah, this is where we have. Oh, know, that's the- right. This is the big action scene. It's that. So she rescues Quasimodo, calls for justice, which, of course. Again, very serious. Yeah. Calls out Frollo for being not not with justice. And Quasimodo runs back to the church and there's huge action scene where she's escaping. And it's super jokey. The old heretic. I mean, it is a funny joke, but it is a funny joke. But again, like you said, we just had some really seriousness and now we're having really jokey chase scene that just didn't quite get the tone right. And right. Either right before or right after old heretic jumping out of his cage into his stocks. We have like Quasimodo talking to Frollo and being like, I will never disobey you again, master. And it's like, what, what movie am I watching? So Esmeralda ends up hiding in the in the church, Notre Dame. And uh, because she's in there claiming sanctuary, which. Uh, well, uh, Phoebus follows her, I, I wrote, and then they flirt fight. <laughs> I think this banter is actually funny and like the good kind of funny and, and it's charming. And this totally works as a meet cute. I do want to know, what do you think of the character of Esmeralda? I think she's a good character. I kept expecting things to be a little different with her because I have seen a a different live action hunchback, the old black and white one. Like I said, I haven't read the book, but it's been so long since I had seen this movie. I kept expecting things to go a little differently with her than they do. But I think she's a pretty good character. I mean, she's the one who's calling for justice and asking for change. (laughs) 
Yeah, I think she's one of the better character uh, female characters in a Disney movie. Maybe the best up to this point. Um, it feels like a lot of what they at least said they were trying to do with Pocahontas works better with her. She's a better as a, you know, because she is a, a woman of color, but she is a genuinely strong character and she's more believable as a romantic lead. So's Kevin Klein, not for nothing. <laughs> um, that's what you get when you cast an actor who doesn't hate women with all of his heart. I really like her character. I think she really works. Again, sometimes the writing doesn't always support her. And of course, in a modern context, she would not be played by Demi Moore. But, uh, you know, I I think she's really good. I really like her. So uh, Phoebus tells her to claim sanctuary so she can stay in the church and not get arrested. And there's, of course, then a whole confrontation with Frollo where he's like, if you step foot outside, you're mine kind of thing. Right. And the concept of sanctuary is actually brought up earlier where Quasimodo's mother is trying to run to the church before she's to ask for sanctuary. Yes. But she is unable to get inside and is, in fact, kicked in the head and killed. It's invoked three times in the movie. That's good writing. And then there's God help the outcasts, which I think is an extremely powerful and important scene. This was the scene that I was a little surprised by because I'd forgotten about it completely. And in the other movie, I saw Esmeralda's like, what is this whole church thing? Like, I don't, what is this God? Like, I don't get anything with this. Right. Um, And so then the fact that she's basically like praying and, you know, knows what God's deal is kind of of surprised me. And so listening to the song again today, I was appreciating it more is all I'm trying to say. I agree. As you know, obviously we're both religious people, although not Catholic. (laughs) I, I find this very powerful for that because it's like Frollo represents everything that's wrong with religion. And indeed I mean, there I've known plenty of wonderful people who, who, you know, believe in the Catholic faith, but like the Catholic church as an institution has done many bad things throughout history. And that's, that's the simple truth of it. Uh, and so he represents, you know, the bad side of it where evil men, especially though, not exclusively can, pervert this, you know, and and pervert people's faith to their evil ends and use it as a tool. But she shows the good of it, which is that, you know, yes, God protects the outcasts when they have God help the outcasts or nobody will. Like, yes, that's what it's all about. And the visuals here of all the people at the church who are asking for wealth and glory and, and possessions walking in one direction and she's walking in the other like. And I saying, I ask for nothing. I can take care of myself, but I ask that you help my people. Help the people who have nothing. That's who you should be helping. Right. That's what it's about, right? Like it's. And this is where you see the beautiful stained glass windows in the church. It's this powerful rejection of like prosperity gospel and, yeah. and all the related ideas. And I. Again, as as a person of faith, like I find it very powerful and it's what, you know, you talked about. I it, I hope it's OK to share this. You said to me when we were recording that the first time you watched this movie, you were a little uncomfortable with its very dark view of the church, which is understandable. It is a very dark view. But this is the scene for me that keeps it from from just having, you know, a super bleak view of of faith and God. and Yeah, I think, again, the first time I saw it, I did not expect where it was going at all. 
And so I kind of got overwhelmed by the darkness of it. But knowing what I was getting into this time, I was able to appreciate things like this song more. Also, you know, it is surprising to see a depiction of Jesus in a Disney movie. And apparently that was a source of much discussion. But ultimately, that was the real window at the time this movie was made. So there you go. Yep. Um, And Esmeralda does want to talk to Quasimodo. And uh, we're interrupted by awful gargoyle business. (laughs) I I tended to I stopped writing about them because I didn't want to (laughs) know. You put your glasses back on and face the facts. (laughs) She apologizes to Quasimodo for having suggested he go up for the uh, King of Fools contest because she didn't know that was his real face. And so she's like, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean for you to get hurt like that. And of course, he, you know. He's touched and he introduces her to the bells and he shows her the sunset and she's impressed by all the stuff he's made, his little miniatures. He's got a little miniature of the square and the people. And so, of course, Quasimodo helps her escape because she can't bear to stay in source for one whole day. <laughs> There's some really good moments. He thinks that uh, all Romani people are evil. Yeah. And she gives a very good explanation, as you would to a child, of why you, you know, must not think that way, why it's wrong to think that way. Yeah, because, of course, he's been raised by Frollo to believe this. Right. But she realizes that, you know, he also hates himself and thinks he's evil. So he she reads his palm. Yeah, it just again, it really works. And it's really striking after like the Pocahontas meet cute and the like, again, they tried to do that culture shock. And it was like, this is, you know, <laughs> And we don't have Esmeralda being like, this is how the Roma people say hello. And he's like, this is how hunchbacks say hello. Like they actually <laughs> they actually talk about the issues. You know, they feel like people. It's nice. Yeah. But yes, he he helps her escape. She gives him a little kiss on the cheek and a dream catcher. Well, that's the uh, the map to the Court of Miracles. She invites him if he ever does need a place to go to come to the court of miracles and gives her a little, gives him a little map. Uh, and he has a little fight with Phoebus. Yep. Once he's back inside the church, he meets up with Phoebus. And again, this is a scene that's very well calibrated where they're fighting, but Phoebus is like, look, like I, I don't really have a problem with you. Like they don't just like, Oh, we're friends now, but as you can tell that, If they did have to team up later in this movie, it wouldn't be totally out of place. Right. And he just wants to pass on a message to Esmeralda. Then um, we have the song, song pairing. First, it's Heaven's Light, which is Quasimodo's section, and then Hellfire, which is Frollo's section. Because again, we're having the contrast. Uh Um, Yes. Uh I, I was like trying to figure out what the name of the song Quasimodo was singing was during the movie. And I'm like, I just put Quasimodo sings love song. <laughs> For all these movies, I don't know. I always just write down a song and then I have to go back and look it up later. Yeah, right, right. So anyway, the part he sings is Heaven's Light, where he's basically singing about I never believed I could ever feel love for anyone like I've seen in people's faces. Like the light of heaven would never fall on me. I'm, you know, the lowliest of the low. And so basically that's what he's singing about. And then we get Frollo singing the song Hellfire. Which is about desire, not love. And 
Moving on. And it that's his basically it's his villain song and it establishes he's being obsessed with Esmeralda and basically he's going to force her to either choose to be with him or she's going to burn. And if he can't find her, he's going to burn Paris until he does. And he does find out that she's escaped the church somehow. And he enacts after this song, a complete no tolerance policy on all Romani people and anyone else who doesn't fit in and beggars and like, basically, it's all bad. It always spills over. It's always uh-huh. just it always just ends up being everybody. The guy doesn't like um, the visuals in the in the Hellfire sequence are very cool. I don't know. We need to talk about all of them, but like the fire lady, the people in red robes chanting like again, there's a reason it's I think it's the most famous sequence in this movie. It's the one that I, I feel I hear talked about the most. So, you know, there you go. We've talked about it. But but yes. Uh, and, and now Frollo orders Phoebus to burn a family. And this is finally Phoebus's line. Yep. And this isn't even a family that is Romani or anything. They are suspected of harboring them, not even any proof. Yes. And Phoebus is like, no, I am not going to burn the house of this innocent family. And Frollo's like, fine, I will. I feel like the complicity here, maybe I'm giving this movie too much credit, but I felt like, you know, he's like, I won't do it. I won't burn this down. But he doesn't stop Frollo from lighting the house on fire. But then... He's like, no, I cannot accept this. He runs in. He saves the family. Yeah. Frollo's going to kill him. And I forget what exactly he says, but basically it's like, fine. I am willing to not only clearly lose my position, but die and lose everything to oppose you. And this is where he, you know, he stops being captain of the guard. He stops trying to, you know, change the system from the system and is now going to truly fight for the side of right. I it worked for me. Yep. But of course he doesn't die, shockingly. Esmeralda saves his life. Everything's bad. Paris is burning. It looks very cool, but also scary. Yeah. There's some AGB. Uh oh, there's uh, unfortunately we have to we have to stop and talk about this one. It's called a guy like you. And it is such a Weird tonal shift (laughs) because everything is dark and burning and horrible. And then all of a sudden we have a very lighthearted musical number by the Gargoyles singing about how, of course, Esmeralda would love a guy like you kind of thing. And I think the line from the beginning of the song that just really got me is something about Paris is all aglow. Well, it is on fire, but it's also with love. I know. It's like, what? Are and you- I'm like, no, 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 that is not good. Right. And it should be noted literally right before this. We are once again chanting Dies Irae. Yeah. And uh, it like there's this whole Latin chant. It's called Paris burning on the soundtrack that translates to like what trembling is to be when the judges come. Lord have mercy. And then, yes, Paris is glowing this evening. True. That's because it's on fire. But still, there's Lamour. 
And the jokes are kind of mean-spirited because the whole point of the song is like, you've got a look that's all your own. There's no other guy like you. And it's like, yeah, yeah, I get it. He's ugly. Like, this is not. You see that face? You don't forget it. He's shaped like a croissant. Great. Yeah. At one point in this song, Quasimodo is wearing a big Mozart wig that was an intentional reference to Amadeus. Oh, that's funny. I didn't get that because I didn't realize who the voice actor was. Yep. I only realized uh, after when I was reading about it. But and it's just this is a mistake a lot of Disney movies make, uh, especially from this point forward, which is let's give the love song to the comedy characters so it's not too sappy. No. And the worst part is, is it's not even their love story. (laughs) Like Quasimodo and Esmeralda are not going to be the couple in the end. And also Heaven's Light is the good. Yeah. It's not it loves like Quasimodo loves Esmeralda's song. Like we already had it. Paris is on fire. We got to get to the movie. Right. Also in here, uh, Phoebus and Esmeralda have a much more passionate kiss. They do. And Quasimodo sees them and he has a little reprise of Heaven's Light, but more of a well, I knew it, I couldn't have it kind of thing. Right. And even though he's kind of heartbroken, again, he still agrees to go with Phoebus to the Court of Miracles to try to uh, to warn Esmeralda. Frollo is very uh, intelligent here. He comes to the tower, talks to Quasimodo and threatens Esmeralda, says he knows where the Court of Miracles is and that he's going to attack tomorrow. And of course, uses this as a ploy to get Quasimodo to go there and warn so he can follow and figure out where it is because he's unfortunately a smart evil villain. Yep, 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 yep. And uh, the important thing is we get to a sewer full of skeletons. It's a crypt. We also do establish that Quasimodo is ridiculously strong, which will be important. But but yes, uh, uh, it's, it's a crypt full of skeletons. He's also smart because he figures out the map. Yes. Yeah. So then we get the Court of Miracles song when they arrive. I really like this song. I like. I really just like everything with Clopin. I think he's probably my favorite character. Yeah, he is a good one. And admittedly, this is probably another moment of the tone being out of whack. Like, it's really dark because he's doing this silly song with the puppet But he's also playing judge, jury, and executioner to our two heroes and is going to hang them from the neck until death. But I I think it works. It works here because it's very, it's much darker humor. It's not like the the gargoyles, which are just lighthearted, silly times. This is a lighthearted sounding song, but it's a very dark humor, you know? making fun of the fact that, well, you're here now. We got to kill you because you know where we are. And, you know, in fairness, he Clopin, you know, does have good reasoning where he's like, well, it's the captain of the guard and the guy Frollo raced. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think this scene totally works. I could see people having a problem with it. I don't. And the song is fun and. All the puppet stuff and the the complete show trial. Like, I don't know, man, I'm laughing. We find you totally innocent, which is the worst crime of all. So you're going to hang. Yeah, it's pretty funny. And of course, they Esmeralda shows up in time to rescue them. They warn everybody. But oh, Frollo was following. What a surprise. Everybody gets captured. 
So it's time to it's time to burn us in Esmeralda. This is where it starts departing from the book the most, which is fine. It's Disney. They always do it. Yes, because we're not going to have everybody die at the end. And <coughs> Frollo does have his creepy whispering like, I can save you from the flames of this world and the next. And she's like, nah, not into any of this. Yeah. And he's like, all right, Bernie, Bernie time. <laughs> That's what he says. Exactly. Crispy <laughs> critters, he says. <laughs> Quasimodo's all chained up. This does have the one line from the gargoyles that I don't hate. It doesn't make up for their presence, but we're only made of stone. We just thought you were made of something stronger. It almost felt to me like did they they wrote that line and then were like, we have to have the gargoyles in the movie. Yeah. To get to that. But even still, they undercut it by having 400 we're not made of stone jokes earlier in the movie. But sure, it's a moment. And that is a good line. It's a good moment. And so then Quasimodo uses his great strength and manages to break the chains so that he can go rescue Esmeralda. It's a very cool sequence of with the rope. And this is my favorite scene of this movie. This is my vote is. Everything from him breaking the chains to, you know, him swooping down, rescuing Esmeralda. We have maybe the all time great caps shot as he swings over the crowd and and picks her up and he gets to the top. And again, we have the the proprietary crowd technology that lets us render this giant crowd. And he holds her up and he yells sanctuary. And that is just exactly that is the the goosebumps machine. Like it's so incredible and it's the animation is incredible. And until he says sanctuary, there isn't any dialogue like, yeah, it is such a wonderful, triumphant moment. It is. It's a great moment. That's my favorite scene. Uh, And then it gets undercut by stupid garbage. Ah! Yeah. The hunchback of Notre Dame giveth and taketh away every time. <laughs> every time. <laughs> that is the only constant is yes. that <laughs> the tone is inconsistent. For every high there is a low. For every two there is a fro. Phoebus rouses the people, frees all the Romani, Gives a cool speech, and now it is full-on revolution time. Love to see it. Yep, Frollo is laying siege to the cathedral, trying to get in. And don't worry, the gargoyle... Like, this whole battle is a silly battle, much like Beauty and the Beast. The gargoyles are doing stuff. One guard gets thrown to his death and does the goofy holler on the way down. Yeah. We once again have the old heretic. He escapes from the wreck, but he falls into the sewer, which is labeled Monsewer. <laughs> again, it's a great joke, but it's like, you know, I was genuinely feeling for these characters and again, you know, had goosebumps and cared about their emotions. And now it's like silly. Oh, my again, my. Another of my absolute least favorite moments in the whole movie is once again, we have Achilles sit and he sits down on a guy's head and some Foley artist decided we needed a big, wet fart sound effect as he sits on the guy's head. (laughs) And it's they just can't leave it alone. They just can't let you feel an emotion. And then after as all this crazy fight stuff is going on, 
I'm pretty sure then we also have Quasimodo, you know, dumping the, I think it's boiling lead um, because presumably he has lead to be able to do repairs on the bells or whatever. I don't know. But we have the cool, albeit ridiculous, exterior shot where it's pouring out of every window like there's an active volcano. Like on every, like on every uh, downspout, every uh, gutter. Yeah. (laughs) And you're like, how much lead did he have? (laughs) He's got a lot of lead. He actually looked completely normal when he was a baby, but that's a lot of lead. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But yeah, and again, like, so we've had this silly scene. We have Achilles Sid. We have Mon Sewer. And now Esmeralda is dead. Yeah. And like, they really let you think she's dead for a long... And I hadn't seen it in long enough. I couldn't remember. I was like, I don't think she's going to be dead because it's a Disney movie, but do they actually kill her? They do not, but... They let you sit in there for a while. And again, it's yeah, like and Quasimodo, you feel it. The music is there. And while he's mourning her, Frollo comes to kill him. Yeah. And the room turns red. But again, I unfortunately you you know, you said you really felt this moment with the music and everything. I could feel this moment, but I genuinely was still reeling from all the silliness that just happened. I was like, I can't take this seriously. Like, I'm trying to, but my emotions just, like, feel out of whack. Whiplash. (laughs) But I do love Quasimodo's speech where, you know, he kind of has finally realized how evil Frollo is, and he ends up by saying, the only thing dark and cruel about the world is people like you, which is well said, I I I must say. And then Esmeralda's just sort of alive. Like it's not, you know, she coughs and she revives and you get a moment to play out. She's just like, I'm on the floor alive. And he's like, okay, we're leaving. And again, it's like, can I just breathe? Nope. Frollo chases them with a sword and there's a whole battle thing. And then I wrote, he pulls a scar by by which I mean, <laughs> he as he thinks he's got them at his mercy, he's like, Oh, actually, I was the one who killed your mother after all, not just, you know, she abandoned you. And then, of course, he falls to his death. (laughs) Yes. At the same time, I wrote, and now Beauty and the Beast happens again because it's, you know, (laughs) they're running over the rooftops. And uh, again, in the book, The Hunchback of Notre Dame pushes for a low, but... In, in a Disney movie, we have to go, ludic- in this case, ludicrously out of our way to make it so the hero doesn't kill anyone, uh, except for Bernard, who did commit a murder. Let's not forget, but uh, <laughs> not not Quasimodo. He has to, like, be willing to push him and then decide not to and then be dangling under him. Like, the machinations to get it so that he falls is just ridiculous. But what are you going to do? It is a Disney movie. And he does indeed fall to his death. And I like this ending when we watched it. Although I agree if you think about it too much, it doesn't hold up. Yep. Phoebus ends up saving Quasimodo at the end. Oh, yeah, yeah. But Quasimodo lets Esmeralda and Phoebus get together, which I think is good. I was worried that they were going to have, like, Esmeralda choose Quasimodo. But I like that his victory is, you know... I get to be free and I get to be my own person. And it's not like you have to be in a relationship. Right. That would be some pretty extreme emotional shift to go from. I am completely isolated in this church, have very little human interaction at all to now I'm in a relationship. 
I agree. And, you know, and Esmeralda, like, she likes Quasimodo. He's a good guy. But she's not shown any romantic interest in him. Yeah. So she completely friend zones him. <laughs> so, you know, it would be weird if at the end she was like, oh, no, I'm in love with you. But instead, the the relationship that has been built up more with Phoebus, you know, with flirting and, and the more romantic kiss, they get together. And this all pretty much plays out without dialogue, which I think is good for for once. <laughs> and they walk outside and there's this great point of view shot as she holds out her hand to Quasimodo and to you, the audience member, and be like, come outside. Yeah. And he does. And I didn't realize when we were watching, but I read later, this little girl who walks up to him in a slightly hacky way, in my opinion, you know, but she walks up to him and she accepts him. Is the little girl Clopin was telling the story to at the beginning. Oh, I didn't recognize that either. You know, he's telling it to a few kids. She's one of them. So I think the idea is that like, well, she knows his tragic backstory. So she Ah. knows like, no, he's a good guy. She chooses who is the monster and who is the man. She does. And she chooses correctly. And we have three cheers for Quasimodo. The uh, Bells of Notre Dame reprises. Yep. We have another good crowd shot. We're panning back. You're like, oh, I feel so richly and emotionally satisfied. Oh, there's the cathedral again. It looks great. And then we end on a gargoyle joke. Yeah. And a stupid one. That's not funny. Not at all. It's not funny. Which is there's birds flying around and Laverne goes, don't you ever migrate? And it's like. You want to do another pass? Yeah, because they have a whole thing in the movie with the with the birds like wanting to s- sit on Laverne all the time. Although it does pay off fairly amusingly during the big fight when she uses them like the flying monkeys and they play the music from Wizard of Oz. Right. Da, 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 da. Yes. But again, it doesn't really fit the tone. It's settled between two <laughs> scenes that it has no business being between. Exactly. Yeah. But, you know, it's OK. So instead of a, uh, a crappy credits cover song, they actually did another one where they took a song that had been written for the movie that they cut out called Someday. And that's the credits song. There's actually a uh, cover version of God Help the Outcasts that's on the soundtrack album. It's Bette Midler. Bette Midler, yeah. It's actually pretty good. What was your favorite scene? I don't think you said. I think I would agree with you that the scene where Quasimodo rescues Esmeralda, I feel like they put the most effort into that scene. You know what I mean? I feel like they worked really hard to get that scene right. I agree that that's probably the best one. It's really good stuff. Speaking of really good stuff, <laughs> not sequels, spin-offs, remakes, rides, and reboots. <laughs> All right. All I have to talk about is the sequel. Uh, it's kind of the main thing to come out of this, but uh, actually I do have one park thing, but I assume you have a lot to say about the parks as well. So you go first. For a specific like attraction at the park, at Disneyland in the uh, Fantasy Fair area, which is mostly focused on the Disney princesses. They've got uh, Clopin's music box that when you turn the crank, it plays topsy-turvy and the little characters move around. And and they don't really do a lot of uh, meet and greets characters right now, though they have a lot more of them in Disneyland Paris. Go figure. But apparently Quasimodo, Esmeralda, Clopin, Frollo, and Phoebus have all been 
uh, meet and greet characters. There's all those funny like TikToks or whatever, or or even just videos of people walking up to like the guy at the park who plays Gaston. Well, guys at, who play Gaston at the parks, they're supposed to have like funny lines, right? Like if you walk up to them, they'll be like, you know, oh, yes, I of course I did all these amazing things. <laughs> you walk up to him at the meet and greet and he's like, here is my ranking of the races from best to worst. And you're like, oh, no, <laughs> there is supposedly a Delarm in coming. It has been announced. We'll see how that goes. Yeah, I mean, probably bad, but uh, and I saw like they're thinking of having Josh Gad play the play Quasimodo, which would just be so annoying. I don't know if he was necessarily going to play it, but he's definitely involved in the project. Like he's really wanting to help push it forward. I don't know if he's helping produce it or. I think there's a lot of rumors swirling around. I mean, it's still very rumory. In fairness, this one could be a good alarm. This is a movie that you could improve in a new version. And it's really all people. I mean, whatever Quasimodo's going to be hopefully made up and not CGI. Uh, And then obviously you're just not going to have the gargoyles. Yep. You know, you could definitely improve on this, but I don't trust Delarms because why would you? For the same reason that after I touched the hot stove once and learned it was hot, I didn't keep touching the hot stove. Yes. I mean, they did do a stage musical of this. It was never on Broadway. It actually started as a stage musical in Germany in 1999. Which I've heard is very good. Yeah. And then they it's basically, though, instead of being a musical based on this movie, what it is is a musical based uh, more a little bit, maybe more on the book, but using the music from this movie. There is an English version um, that came to the States in 2014. That's a little different again, but, you know, it's never been as big as some of the other Disney musicals, uh, live musicals. So in 2002, we got The Hunchback of Notre Dame 2, occasionally but not very often referred to as The Hunchback of Notre Dame 2, The Secret of the Bell. It is a direct uh, Your Toilet sequel yep. that uh, I had time to watch in full, so I did. I did not. Don't, although, funnily enough, uh, all the animation was done in Walt Disney Animation Japan, so it is technically anime, I think. <laughs> I think that's how that works. <sighs> Everything about it is bad. It, it, first of all, like, it doesn't look worse than any other direct-to-video movie. In fact, it looks better, I would say, than, like, either of the Aladdin sequels, for sure. But compared to, again, this is one of the best-looking, for all its fault, best looking Disney movies ever, like Disney anime movies. And then when you go from that to watching the direct to video sequel, (laughs) it's really jarring. I sent you a picture of the first shot of the cathedral in it, where it's just like, (laughs) it looks like clip art. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, they didn't put quite as much effort into it. Uh, And they tried to do some cap stuff. And every time they do, I'm like, don't. Don't know your limitations. Stop this. (laughs) Please don't. Please don't. It's uh, six years after the events of the original film. Phoebus and Esmeralda are married and they have a child. Quasimodo is just hanging around Paris and uh, everybody likes and accepts him, although he still lives in the bell tower because he still likes ringing the bells, which doesn't ring true. Ha ha. But it doesn't Uh ring true to me because like, 
I just spent a year stuck in my house, not being abused. And the second I could move, I did, as did most (laughs) of my friends and co-workers and you. Like, (laughs) I feel like if you've been trapped in the same place for that long, but I don't know, maybe... Maybe if you're trapped long enough, then it becomes all you... Whatever, I don't... The movie doesn't get into his psychological reasoning behind this decision. They just want to do more gargoyle stuff. By and large, this movie is your classic direct-to-video sequel. It's the same thing as the first movie again. Yep. But worse in every respect. For example, you know, the first movie... You know, as opposed to, say, Pocahontas, it does a much better job showing, like, the oppression of the Romani only goes in one direction. Mm -hmm. Everyone thinks that they're thieves, but they're not. Uh, And so, of course, the villain of the sequel is a thieving Romani person. Uh. So that's great. You love that that's what it is. Uh, All the religious stuff, all the religious stuff is gone. Obviously, Frollo doesn't come back, nor is there, like, I was kind of hoping for like, come on, give me the like Frollo kid. Like so many of these direct-to-video sequels. Oh, so bad. But the main thing is that, you know, again, because we're doing the first movie again, Quasimodo is once again super depressed and miserable all the time. And this time he's miserable because, and he wants to go to a festival but can't. In this case, the festival is the completely fictitious and ill-defined Day of Love a day dedicated to celebrating love. And basically, Quasimodo's motivation in this movie is that feeling when no GF. <laughs> <laughs> Which, like, listen, you know, I know I, I it can be very hard to be single when you don't want to be. And, you know, especially on, like, Valentine's Day, like, I don't want to downplay those emotions. It's not the same as... I'm traumatized because I've been locked in a bell tower for, like, 20 years and abused. Yes, but they wanted to make this sequel so much more lighthearted, so they had to give it even lighter stakes. But they that, that's the thing, though. They don't play it like lighter stakes. They play it at the same level. That's what oh, feels no. so wrong about it, is because they make him seem equally sad and traumatized and, you know, oh, I'll never be accepted by society until I have GF. By the way, pretty much the entire cast came back, including Tom Hulse, who had retired at this point. I don't know what dump truck full of money they backed up to his house. <laughs> but uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt as uh, Madeline is the girl he falls for. She has no character. She's very boring. Uh, they meet the same way he meets Esmeralda and their relationship plays out the same way. But this time they fall in love. Also, she's white. So whatever, we're saying something. Meanwhile, Phoebus is having basically a completely separate plot <laughs> with this villainous Romani thief who is trying to steal a bell. Uh, it's a special magical bejeweled bell called La Fidelle, which uh, of course is completely fictitious and which is rung every year to celebrate the festival of love and our villainous villain is attempting to steal it. It's it's bonkers. Because you can <laughs> stick that in your pocket. <laughs> yeah, and because, you know, that is uh, a, a villainous crime on par with what Frollo's doing. <laughs> Whatever. It's mostly boring and stupid in exactly the ways you would expect it to be boring and stupid. Uh, slash occasionally offensive. The gargoyle jokes are even less funny, but they're also mostly less gross. But I do have to talk about 
the ending because the ending is insane. The ending, as you can imagine, uh, the villain is defeated. We're having the festival of love. Everyone has a partner. Everyone's happy. Yep. Which means that, among other things, <laughs> Achilles, the horse, has a horse girlfriend who only shows up in this scene. Uh-huh. Hugo the Gargoyle successfully wins over and begins a relationship with Esmeralda's pet goat, Jolly, which is a joke that's in this first movie a little bit, but they really... They really, I mean, he he gives her flowers and she clearly is like in love with him. And it's like, what are we doing? <laughs> but then uh, obviously the, the last couple to get together is Quasimodo and Madeline, who have had a really, you know, forced misunderstanding early in the movie. It's all come together. She comes up to the to the tower and they proclaim their love for each other and they kiss. And after they kiss, ladies and gentlemen, then she can see and talk to the gargoyles just like he can. Mom is showing a shocked face. It is the craziest possible explanation for the gargoyles. Is it not? Am I correct? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty weird. How do they settle the are the gargoyles real or not? They are real and you can only see them if you swap saliva with Quasimodo. The craziest, craziest, craziest possible idea. It almost made watching the whole movie. I mean, for podcast purposes, it made watching the whole movie worth it. Just because I was like, (laughs) is there even anything to talk about on the episode? Oh, oh. Oh, there is. There is indeed. <laughs> uh, but don't watch it. Even at 66 minutes long, it's it's pretty torturous. Uh, <laughs> don't do it. Anyway, we don't rate these movies on a scale of how much better or worse they are than their demented sequels. But uh, <laughs> rather, <laughs> we ask each other two questions. The first of which, and I think, you know, this is a legitimate question this time around, is mom, would you recommend this movie? I think I would recommend this movie. I was trying to decide if this was a yes or a qualified yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I think if someone's like, would you watch this? It was worth watching. Yeah, I think it's worth watching. Go in knowing what to expect, though. <laughs> yeah, it's not a perfect movie. It's not a great movie, but I think it's a good movie overall. I agree. It's a qualified recommend for me. And the qualification is this movie I find more interesting for what it could have been than what it is. Yeah. But like, I still had a good time watching it. It's still it's especially worth it if you are an animation nerd. Uh, It's it's fun. I definitely could see myself watching it again and not, you know, I wouldn't hate myself. Uh, right, right. It's, it's it wouldn't a be punishment or torture. <laughs> it is not my favorite Disney movie or my favorite Renaissance movie like it is for so many people. I think The Lion King manages to be maybe not quite as dark, but still very dark while being a more cohesive movie. Yep. The Gargoyles are the beginning of the end for civilization. <laughs> But overall, yeah, it's it's a recommend. This is a good movie, I think. Yep. And I'm glad it is now largely recognized as such. Uh, would you show it to a child? No, I don't no. think I would show it to a young child. Big no. I, I think they would need to be a teenager before I would show it to them. Maybe, you know, 
You at least got to cross double digits. Yeah, at least 10 or above. Again, know your child. I did not show it to my children. <laughs> no. But again, I didn't even remember what it was. So yeah, this is a hard no. You're going to have to have way too many conversations about stuff and they're going to get freaked out, like almost guaranteed they're going to get freaked out. Yeah. So that's going to do it for the Hunchback of Notre Dame. We'll be back (laughs) next week with 1997's Hercules back in the Musker and Clement zone. Mom, what do you think of Hercules? Honey, you mean Hercules. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's darn right I do. That's that's probably the best joke in that movie. Yep. Uh, I think Hercules is some fun fluff. I agree. <laughs> so until next time, we'll be seeing Bless My Soul, Hercules on a roll. <laughs> <laughs> I'm me. And I'm Mom. And it all started with a mouse. <laughs> <laughs>